You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 61 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Connor John and David Howe. In this episode, we are continuing to talk about the Revolutionary War, aka the War for American Freedom, aka America War. Well, this one is more factual, just as hilarious as episode 57. We got some feedback, boys, from the, from the first one. <laughs> Connor, what did your dad tell you today? So I, so I informed my dad that we were recording uh, the, the next version of, of this one. And he said, uh, hey, Connor, this time, read about it. <laughs> and, and David, your dad gave you quite quite a text message as well, if I recall. Yeah, I was like, I didn't know you still listened to it. Because a while back, he was like, I don't know, all you guys do is giggle. And I was like, all right, well, my dad doesn't listen to my podcast anymore. That's fine. This time, out of the blue, he was like, yeah, all your dates are wrong, you and like <laughs> here, uh sorry we can't say that here's this uh, a fact check something something about the boston tea party like we were dead wrong about that and then he was talking about like my family heritage and stuff like that and it's like i don't i'm an archaeologist i deal with rocks this is out of my like <laughs> wheelhouse i did take a class on it so you know like i'm sorry dad and I'm sorry, anybody yeah, the viewer that listened that was like, man. He specifically said, no, Carlton's an idiot. They didn't send the tea bricks. They actually sent Twinning's tea leaves. It wasn't the shavings. He was like, it was legitimate leaves of tea, Carlton. Well, I don't think he called you an idiot, though. No, he did not. He's a very nice man. It was, it was implied, but, you know. <laughs> it was very much implied. It's okay. That's what... Oh, no, it's funny because I like I tried to introduce I like met other people and I was like, oh, this is my podcast and you know we do this and this and then I was like just talking with my dad and he said, you know, just don't listen to the one about the Revolutionary War. It's just like he basically told this guy like don't listen to that one. The rest are good. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but, yeah. I love you, Dean. I mean, to be fair, like we also had like five or six listeners email us to say, Hey, that was like fun energy, but you guys got a lot of things wrong <laughs> and literally that's fans correct us. And, uh, yeah. Hey, it's but you, it's feedback. It's feedback it is. and we it's finally, engagement on the, the Instagram. Finally. Was, I think we were like, great. the bad part is that we were like messed up from the beginning. Cause I think we started out with King George the fifth and then reverted yeah. to the third. Like, <laughs> we decided beforehand we're like let's just do it me and david have taken a class we got this we gave connor crap for not taking a class and then me and david just sat on here and it was like an episode of fox news we're just like one bad fact after another one bad analogy and interpretation after well, you the see other. the the liberal media <laughs> would have you believe that it was twinning's tea dumped in the tea party in the boston harbor but actually it was america itself and immigrants are bad. <laughs> I'm Tucker Carlson. <laughs> and here we go, giggling again. So uh, we're gonna do it. We're gonna do a better time, right, boys? We actually have real dates. We have real names. We have some archaeology for you to listen to today, because <laughs> this is an archaeology podcast. And well, at, least so, that's, at least that's the goal. So that's what we that's what we brand ourselves, <laughs> yeah. whether it's true or not. Yeah, we'll see if it devolves into utter chaos again, which I wouldn't be surprised. Exactly. So we even tried to film and record some of this in the car on that day when we were stranded on the mountaintop in Colorado. But I quickly learned in the back seat that I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> so we stopped. 
and I was like, I think I hung over over 10 breakfast tequila shots and was just not, not in a place to be saying anything. I don't know if that's something you want to announce to the world. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I'm fine with it. It's okay. We had a fun, it was a fun weekend. Wasn't it, Connor? It was great. So great. Yeah. It was wasn't wasn't awesome. wasn't bad. It's was great. I was I was thinking today at work about the, the, the lady yelling at the driver. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, that's a story for another time. So, crossing the Delaware. That's where we ended, right? Yep, and that's that's where we're supposed to begin. We're really just kind of go through this, give that some dates, in, talk ni- about it. That was in 1900, yeah. right? 1901. Uh, it was actually twelve twenty two. Twelve twenty two. Right after Columbus, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, <laughs> <laughs> and he crossed the Delaware <laughs> and found the New World. Uh, no, so he ended with crossing the Delaware, which we were we were right. It was December twenty fifth, seventeen seventy six to December twenty sixth, seventeen seventy six. George Washington surprised a bunch of Hessians. Very few casualties on the revolutionary side. Can yeah. we argue that the Revolutionary War began at Thermopylae? You know, with the defense of Western democracy as we know it. Let's go back to there. Against the East. <laughs> I, that's a History Channel episode. They're, they're like the really pretentious guys. Like we could argue that. <laughs> I love how we got we we. I love how we got one comment from someone. They're like, "You guys were spot on." He's a British guy, and is like, "Yeah, we just didn't have enough time to deal with the rebels." And I was like, "Calm down, dude." The oh, rebels. Yeah, I need to address uh what Stefan called me out on, uh, Stefan Milo, very, in, very intelligent man, very, very articulate man, messaged me in my phone, in my DMs, not even, just texted me because we're on that level. And he was like, hey, man, just so you know, that's not just British. It's English, British, North Irish and Scottish. So you can't just say you have Scottish ancestry and British ancestry and talk about them as two different factions. They're all British. You have English ancestry and Scottish ancestry. They're all British. It's all the British Isles. And I was like, even if the Scottish want to separate from Britain and he was or from England and he was like, well, yeah, because it's still Britain. Like they just want to separate from the English. And I was like, oh, color me wrong and hand me to my mom. You know, so sorry, Stefan. Maybe even got that wrong, too. And Tosh also messaged us because we called her out by name and sent us an Instagram saying she doesn't have limes, but she does have lemons. As a sphinx. Like she used a face filter as a sphinx to tell us that too, which I thought was really funny. It was it was good. It yeah. was good. All right. So we should get back on track because people have already tuned out. <laughs> Here we go again. It's another one. Uh, so... We're jumping from the Delaware crossing, 1776, end of 1776, to October 17th, 1777. So I don't think there's uh, there's not a ton of stuff going on. Essentially, it's it's, uh, there's you know I don't think there's anything that really super significant that happens in that time. You know, a lot of hunkering down and a lot of being cold and malnourished and dying. That's about it. At least that's what I saw on the internet. So, you know, that's a good place to start. Well, like hold on. Are we talking about October? Oh, I, thought we're, I thought we were talking about Burgoyne Saunders at Saratoga. Yeah, I'm just saying like between December and October, not a lot happened. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, so in, in 1777, there's not a lot going on between December or January and, and October in general. 
But then we get to October 17th, 1777. See, that's a real date. That's a, that's an actual time. And we have a guy. His name is uh, John Burgoyne. I, I totally, totally messed that up. Uh, this date is important because he surrenders at Saratoga. He had come to, I think it was King George or um, some of the generals, and had this crazy plan to kind of retake New England and the Lake Champlain area with the ultimate goal of being uh, taking over Fort Ticonderoga. And this was this kind of like an attempt to isolate England from the other colonies and quell that crazy rebellion up there. Divide and conquer. You know what uh, Lake Champlain is famous for? Loch Ness Monster. Do you know what his name is? Nessie? Champ. Champ. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just woke up. <laughs> there's, there's that Scottish heritage at work there. Yeah, no, Lake Champlain, home of the Lake Champlain monster. Supposedly like a Loch Ness monster. His name's Champ. Dude, Apparently Ma, he's friendly. Ma Champ? Or what's the... Uh, just Champ. It's the one after that. Yeah, you'd have to, you'd have to trade him in the link cable to make a Ma Champ. <laughs> it's just Ma Choke right now. <laughs> so this is considered a big turning point in the war. Uh, because General Horatio Gates is able to surround Burgoyne and his force and, and takes Burgoyne. And this was a, a significant victory. It allowed, like the, the colonies were clearly not separated by this, and a huge morale booster for the American Revolution. But then as we get into December, we have Valley Forge, which I mentioned last time and was completely wrong about when it happened. That was 1773, right? It's Valley Forge is <laughs> December 19th, 1777 till like spring of 1778. Yeah, and if you guys have, have spent time in the Northeast during winter, it's it's not exactly pleasant. <laughs> and this was actually during the Little Ice Age. This was like one of the coldest winters on record. The Little Ice Age was like a thousand years ago, not 200. There's another one. Let me... Let me sure, look, sure. Let's just, fact check. Gotta, no, no, no. This is good. We have to fact check. Is it Why the, was the Valley Forge so cold? You know? <laughs> I, I don't doubt that you're you're right. It's just like I think yeah, maybe my terminology is wrong. But it, yeah. it was a really it was one of the coldest coldest winters on record. I'm gonna get another slew of emails calling me an idiot and uh, drop out of my PhD program, which is fine. I think about it every day, anyways. It's like, uh, um, yeah, because I think the, the one David's referencing was like two, three thousand years ago. You have that. The uh, Maya collapse, the Vikings, the Crusades, the Mongols, you know, like it's a pretty big deal. We need to have a conversation about collapse one of our episodes to talk about that. Just hit up Jared Diamond. I don't I want to. I got him on speed <laughs> dial. <laughs> How about no? Anyways, while I'm looking this up, someone else want to take take the lead on this? Yeah, so um, it's it's a brutal winter, as as Carlton's mentioning, and he'll he'll tell you why eventually. So uh, they end up losing seventeen hundred to almost two thousand soldiers from disease, and this is probably made worse by not having a ton of food. Trying to think, I need to look up how many troops they had in total, and it's so that's like a because I think it was actually like a pretty significant hit to the troops that were actually there. So you know, if it's one or two thousand out of a hundred thousand, that's maybe not something as important. But I think twelve thousand. So twelve thousand. So like a a sixth of his army dies at Valley Forge in this in this really cold 
area, a really cool time period, and that is because the Little Ice Age. The Little Ice Age is defined as extending from the 16th to 19th centuries. Okay. So what's the one that was like a thousand years ago? Probably another Little Ice Age. I mean, geologists aren't very clever when it comes to naming stuff. Mm. Okay. Or maybe that checks out. Or maybe archaeologists are not good at reading the, the primary literature. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, so they, so they lose like a sixth of the army and they were, had to remain there for six months um, until June 19th. That's after seven, my birthday. Well, seven. I guess like, you know, 200 something years, but you know. Yeah. That's fuck. That's worthless information. I'm sorry. I brought that up. I apologize. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just the the victory at Saratoga and uh, the kind of stopping of the Northern Campaign ultimately leads to France and the United States forming an alliance. I'm thinking of the medieval warming period. Oh, that's what it is. That's okay, different. gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha, that was yeah. first. The Opposite of the Little Ice Age. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where you could have like wine and. Oh, I can't remember. Rich always says somewhere you could you could grow grapes in, in certain areas. Yeah, probably like Montana, but you know. <laughs> but also, so long along Valley Forge is important for two reasons. Like one, a lot of people winter while the while the Americans are freezing to the Northern Army under Washington is freezing to death. British are in New York City having a great time, like fun time. Christmas in New York, gambling, drinking, having and fun, they're, and they're warm, you know. But also. The Prussian drill sergeant shows up and begins to train the troops. Von Steuben. Uh, von Steuben, exactly. He shows up, gets everyone in, in into shape. But also around this time, as, as Connor's mentioning, that there's France and the United States form an alliance under the Treaty of Alliance. And interestingly, they found 30 bayonets, among other things, at Valley Forge. This was a couple of years ago. They found a cache of 30 bayonets, which was huge. And they looked at them, and they were all different – they're all different bayonets because in that time, bayonets were made for specific muskets or rifles. And so the American Revolutionary Army, which is basically at a, you know, BYOM, bring your own musket, <laughs> uh, there wasn't a standardized system. And so what they think, archaeologists think that this, this cache represents is as they are expecting weapons from France. They're getting rid of dated material. So that's why this cash pit exists. It's not like it was forgotten. They could have just gotten new muskets and they had new bayonets that their old bayonets didn't fit on and they're just kind of disposing of them. So that's a cool little find. It was found by uh, Battlefield Restoration and Archaeology Volunteer Organization, also known as BRAVO. That's an excellent acronym. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent acronym. And it's uh, so the U.S. or the United States at this point was cut off economically from basically everyone. Mm -hmm. So that's why they had to BYOM, as as Carlton said. And uh, yeah, so this 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 treaty is big and huge because it opens up both diplomatic and commercial ties with France. So they they can we can start trading. We have some sort of uh, communication with France, and ultimately, uh, this is like a big old go blank yourself to the to the british which is nuts that like ben franklin and other diplomats i think adams was there at this time were able to convince another european monarchy to support a bunch of crazy liberals with these ideas of democracy but ultimately boiled down to france and britain at this time were such hated enemies that they were able to be like you have a chance to really mess with britain and get back some of your territories that you lost in 
the Seven Years' War, as well as if we're independent, we can begin trading with you and open up those economic ties. Because before, as we discussed in the last episode, which is actually correct, the colonies were only allowed to officially trade back with Great Britain and nobody else. So even though if the French didn't get actual territory back, just the ability to open up commerce was a huge boon which later we'll see in time comes back to bite them in the butt as revolutionary fever catches on in France sometime after the American Revolution. Off, <laughs> off, off with their heads. Yeah. So I think it's time to guillotine this segment because we've come to the end of it. And we'll be back with segment two of episode 61. Hey, hang uh, on. Before, before we end, you said you watched the newest Pirates the other day, right? Pirates of the Caribbean? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Like that stupid guillotine scene. Like, come on. That yeah, movie was I mean, just stupid in general. Just it erased that movie from the history of the annals, dude. Like it. it all right, guys. Sorry. Yeah, just it, it was bad. Next and segment. And we've been canceled. <laughs> Man, my hands are clammy. Speaking of clammy, welcome back to episode sixty-one of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we sometimes talk about history. And on this episode, we are continuing our journey into and through the Revolutionary War. I think we mentioned some some big people and, you know, like like Benjamin Franklin. Because he was a player. What, what? Real talk, he was. I hope some of you know what that sound is. I know half our audience is like, oh boy. And the other's like, I don't it get didn't, it. It didn't play. That's why I'm what? sitting here with a blank <sighs> face. Oh. Never let's mind. Just, let's just start this, this session over again. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely played. It picked it up in the in the track. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we finished talking about France, where Benjamin Franklin was stationed for a little bit, and the United States forming alliance an alliance. And then we have so in uh, March seventh, seventeen seventy eight, we have David's namesake is replaced, humiliated, sent away by uh, Henry Clinton. Hmm. David, do you want to talk about your namesake and? It's not the first time a Clinton has humiliated and sent me away. <laughs> I don't know what I mean by that. Oh, no. <laughs> I just know somebody listening is like, yeah, that's right. Were you on uh, an island? I was born on an island. Was it a short island? How would you describe it? Uh, it says pretty long. So, yeah, I, mean, I guess we could say Clinton replaced the British general, William Howe, as commander in chief because Howe had resigned either from doing, you know, just piss poorly or because he was hammered in New York City most of the time. So, you know, they executed Order 66. Nope, sorry. Orders were to strengthen areas of North America <laughs> under British control and not advance in the rebel areas, which, you know, is good. You want to maintain those big port cities. You want to maintain where the actual colonies, like, you know, life, blood is and like economic power is. Same strategy we employed in the Vietnam War, and it turned out just as successfully. Yeah. yeah. And we had mentioned this in the, the previous episode that there's varying views on how to kind of approach this war. Um, I think Howe was initially told to just kind of quell the rebellion. And this, is, this seems to be along the same lines of like, hey, just like hold our stuff together. Keep our poop in a group too soon. And, and, and not ultimately like advance or do anything do anything else um, and you'll see that later um, that that causes problems for Cornwallis down in uh, the lovely area of uh, Yorktown 
So that was 1778. Henry Clinton took over. And then we got to get to, I don't know what, like that's a, that's a two year span here on the timeline that we just don't have anything between that and Benedict Arnold. Is there nothing that happens then? I think it's, I think it's because of Clinton that there, not a lot happens. You know, I don't think okay. there's, you know, it's, it's this, and I'm probably wrong and someone's going to tell me I'm wrong, but I would assume it's, there's not many battles that occur because there's not much territory ceded and things are just being fortified. But if, if I'm wrong, yell at me in the comments, send me hate mail, slide into my DMs, whatever you, whatever you feel. Yes. Do those things. I'm pretty sure we pulled up this timeline and then added notes to it from like a list of important events. So really just kind of covering the major things that had occurred during the American Revolution. So there was probably... Let's talk about Eggs Benedict then. Yeah. yeah. There's probably things going on in the Southern campaign that we're just not touching because no one really talks about it, unfortunately. But yeah, so we're going to talk about Eggs Benedict. Is that where the name comes from? I'm, I don't want to sound like I such an idiot. I highly doubt it. <laughs> I'm going to look it up. I mean, Benedict is just a, a British name, so it's probably like a British food. Fair enough. Another Benedict is a family name from um, the people who kind of popularized eggs Benedict in the 1860s. Yeah. So I sounds like a snooze. <laughs> 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 Let me tell so, you about eggs Benedict. <laughs> 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 Oh my God! So this is no, what so when we're being factual, this is just is all fine. We're, we're way we got a hyena, it, dude. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, okay. So 1780, Benedict Arnold turns traitor. He's a he's a general in the American Revolution. He's integral to the Battle of Saratoga, which was a turning point in the war. He keeps constantly over the course of his career being passed up for, for promotions, like a beloved general in the continental army and through his like girlfriend, sweetheart, when uh, the British evacuate Philadelphia, finally Benedict Arnold takes residence, gets involved with this gal, Peggy, Peggy Shippen. He marries Peggy Shippen and she was a close friend of a British major, John Andre, who was in, te- who was in charge of British intelligence. And it's through Peggy that Arnold opens up negotiations with Andre, basically to capitalize on the fact that uh, Benedict Arnold, who's an extremely proud man, who thinks he's being taken advantage of by the um, Continental Army, he's not being given the credit he deserves, basically works out a deal with Andre that for 20,000 pounds, Benedict Arnold's going to deliver West Point, a fort, Fort West Point at this point, at this time, not point, to the British, which is a huge stronghold in New York. And that's what was going to happen, except, and, and Arnold was in charge of this fort. So that was the whole deal. And um, it was going to happen, but in September of 1780, Patriot militiamen actually capture Andre and find the papers that reveal the plot expose Arnold as a traitor. He's able to escape, but Andre was hanged. And if any of you guys have watched the show, oh God, it's like America's Spies. Turn. Turn. They, they, they you know, dramatize the story a bit, but that's a major plot point. That's roughly, that's pretty well true, but of course, like they have to make stuff up. But anyways, Arnold does successfully become a turncoat. Um, he's commissioned as Brigadier General in the British Army. And... 
yeah, moved to Canada after the war. But that's that's so that's what ends up what happening with with Arnold. And it's a big betrayal. And he's looked down extraordinarily poorly in, in America because he is the great traitor. And I'm trying to remember, did he lose? And this is important. Did he lose a, a arm or something? Oh, he got I think he got like he didn't lose an arm, but he got severely. I think he got shot and had like a musket ball somewhere that like hampered his like his physical abilities. And I think that was at, I think when yeah. he was fighting up North. Yeah. He had his, he, he messed up his leg. His leg was shattered. Yeah. At, uh, at the, and rather than having amputated, it was crudely set, leaving it two inches shorter than his right leg. Um, I think he's ultimately passed up. Like he was, he was almost chosen to be like the second, in charge to Washington to of the I think the Northern troops and was passed up to, by Horatio Gates. So that's part of that, as Carlton had mentioned, part of that kind of reason why that he ultimately betrays his his beautiful beautiful country. Yeah, and like after the war specifically, he was really looked down upon. And Benjamin Franklin wrote that uh, Judas sold only one man, Arnold three million. Hmm. Yeah, and like if you look at how people wrote about Arnold after the war, it's not great. Oh, there's a boot monument at Saratoga National Historic Park. That's right, to the boot he lost. So his boot is that he lost at Saratoga has higher praise than the man itself. I hope that's how I go out too. It, it reads, in memory of the most brilliant soldier of the Continental Army who was desperately wounded on the spot, winning for his countrymen the decisive battle of the American Revolution and for himself the rank of Major General. And the Victory Monument at Saratoga has four niches, three of which are occupied by statues of General Gates, Schuler, and Morgan, and the fourth niche remains empty. So they, we acknowledge him in our history, but we don't put his name anywhere because of what he does afterwards. Hmm. So love hate relationship. He was, you know, he he was in so instrumental in the founding of our nation, and he messed that all up for a woman. Yeah, yeah, and I think that it was it was her yeah. kind of whispering in his ear the whole time. You know, oh, I have this person you can contact, and and you know, she ultimately leads him. And she's down. the one kind of feeding him, like you know, like Gates is. They're they're treating you badly. You deserve more, Arnold, Benedict, whatever. Where are my eggs? Okay, let's Cumber move on. Cumberbatch. <laughs> Mr. Right. Cumberbatch then Mr. Uh, Cumberbatch. keeps fighting along in the, uh, for the British for the rest of the war. So, and then there's more fighting, skirmish, 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 battle, battle, battle. And uh, the, kind of the next big thing is that the in March 1st of 1781, the Articles of Confederation are ratified and you guys are all asleep and we are sorry. Yeah, and that's like the first document is basically before the um the, uh, no, uh, the the uh, constitution. Yeah, it's before the constitution. It really kind of sucks. There's no federal basically it doesn't give the federal government any ability to do anything. And that comes down later when they do the constitution, but yeah, articles of integration are ratified, focused on preserving independence and sovereignty of the states, weak central government. It mostly just, as, as Connor mentioned here, it mostly just legalizes what the Continental Congress had already been doing. So, snore. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't know what to talk about. I don't, I, this is out of my wheelhouse. But we get to Yorktown. Yay. And Yorktown is crazy. Finally, the French really start arriving. So, up until this point, Washington's firm battle doctrine 
is to retake New York. He's under this idea that if you retake New York, you can win the war. And through this time, the campaign in the South, basically Cornwallis is just, and his army is leading up from the Carolinas into Virginia. And he's basically kind of knocking, supported with loyalists, kicking the colonials, trying to get click him out of the South, and then go meet up with Clinton in the North uh-huh. and provide, you know, really turn the Continental Army up in the North, like get rid of it under Washington. And the French arrive, which is important. In, uh, in May, the Virginia government flees to Charlottesville. Cornwallis takes over Petersburg with 1,500 troops. Cornwallis really has a small army of only 7,200 men. And as the war in the South is going on, Rochambeau shows up at Providence in June with like 4,800 Frenchmen. And Rochambeau is able to convince Washington like, hey, Let's sneak out in the middle of the what? Why are you laughing? What did I do? One, two, three, Rochambeau. <laughs> yeah, I just laughing at that. Okay, <laughs> to go take out Cornwallis, that they could trap Cornwallis in the south, join the southern and northern continental armies, knock out the British threat to the south, open back up the southern economies, and then if anything force Clinton to surrender. So they basically take off. They do a, a bunch of delaying tactics outside New York. They like have a remaining force there to light campfires to make it seem like they're still occupying there. They're, they keep Rochambeau and Washington make their way from New York. Really, well, they're in New Jersey, really. Down to Princeton, through Philly, down to Baltimore. At this time, Cornwallis arrives in New Yorktown and kind of starts setting up camp there. DeBarris, Admiral DeBarris sails from Newport, Rhode Island with 12 French ships of the line. Admiral DeGrasse enters the Chesapeake Bay with 28 French ships of the line and 3,000 French troops. Graves, who's the British general, at this point, they realize the Continentals are gone. And through some, you know, messaging, wow, this is such a boring episode. He sails from New York City with 19 ships, British ships of the line. The British and French have an all-out naval engagement outside of Chesapeake Bay. The British lose, trapping Cornwallis. Like Cornwallis can no longer escape by sea. He's stuck there. Yorktown is on a peninsula in the uh, coastal region of Virginia. Actually pretty close to where Jamestown is. Mm. Fun fact. Cool. Uh, Allied army transported by water to Yorktown facility. And then uh, Washington and Rochambeau arrive at Yorktown. The Allied army totals 16,650. Cornwallis only has those 7,200 men. And the siege begins in September 29th to October 19th. So it's about three weeks. Yeah, and an important thing is that, that he wanted to, this is like supposed to be a naval point. It's not supposed to be something that he's defending as an, as an army. You know, he's, he's, he's just having, you know, he's instructed to put something there to help the Navy. Um, and it's kind of at the choke point uh, of, the, of the York River, between the York River and the Baltimore north of it. No, yeah, I think it's just north a, of it. Uh, it's just um, just another uh, part of Virginia there. So that's it's not like an ideally defensible position, no. and it's an easy, easily, easily surroundable position. So yeah, he's he's up against the coast, being bombarded by French and, and American artillery, which are veteran at this point. And behind him, from the sea, you're talking about like twenty something French ships of the line. Like these aren't sloops; they're not brigs. These are man of wars. 
and they're bombarding him by sea. So he's 360 degrees. And he made it three weeks. But finally, he surrenders his troops. Men of Wars have three three decks of cannons, right? Yeah, I believe so. They're yeah. a specific, you know, military ship. You know, and that's and that's crazy. And that it just ends the war. He surrenders. You lose that army. the The French and the French are there. I mean, because also, you know, Graves' fleet's badly mauled. They don't have a uh, – the British no longer have a Navy present. And it's just a matter of time before they go to New York and repeat that. Even if the, the Clinton has more troops available, at this – probably at this point in time, not many. Because I know a lot of his men were on those 19 ships that he sailed down – tried to sail down to Yorktown. So it would be the same thing. They'd set up around New York – blast the heck out of it and they'd have French naval support. Apparently King George III, not the fifth, he doesn't show up until World War II, a long time away. <laughs> he wasn't happy about this. But this is what this is what settled it. Yeah, and I think the an interesting point is that Cornwallis doesn't surrender. He doesn't I don't know how to say this like appropriately or PC. he doesn't do the honorable thing. I know what you're talking about. Like he, he doesn't surrender himself. Yeah. He he sends his like second in command to formally uh, surrender at Yorktown. And he tries to surrender to Washington and Washington looks at him like, F you dude, like you're my second or you're his second. You're going to surrender to my second. Like I'm not playing these games. Like (laughs) you're surrendering to me, you know, I didn't march like thousands of miles with my freaking wood teeth and my messed up back to to take a sword from some second clown. Yeah. And then like Cornwallis gets a bad rap for that. But like after the American Revolution, he goes to India and his story in India is much different than the the U.S. story. I guess we'll go ahead and wrap up this second segment. All right. Well, let's start the new one up with, you know, the end of the war for a little bit. Sounds great. Yeah, we'll be back with segment three. We'll figure out some stuff to talk about. Dude, you guys are bored to tears. I'm so sorry. One of the Life Everyone's podcast. This has been the longest episode known to man. We bored you with details about the Revolutionary War, even though we love it. I think it's because we had our souls crushed by all the feedback of how bad I did it the first time. And now we're like super concerned. We got like three feedback. <laughs> we, got, still. we got your your parents. We had the emails and we had the Instagram stuff. It was, I think yeah. we had a dozen. We had yeah, emails. I didn't see the emails. Yeah, I read the emails. They were nice though. They were like, we love your show. This episode sucked in particular. We expect what? better from you. I didn't see those emails. Let me look at them. They're under the fan mail label. I already moved All into right. that inbox. If this episode couldn't get boring, or Carlton's talking about the Life and Ruins email labels. And so, the emails, <laughs> September 3rd, 1783, the war is over. Everyone surrenders. The French go back. They probably would throw up a treaty flag because they're French. It's what it is. King George III signs it, and boom, America's doing its thing, and then everything from there is downhill. And then we get Donald Trump. <laughs> we and canceled. Uh, but and what we canceled. want to talk about in this last segment is the importance of a type of archaeology that is called battlefield archaeology, and it's actually really super interesting stuff. I don't know if any of us have done it, but we I've seen some talks on what they're finding at 
and, and their ability to reconstruct stuff. Yeah, so battlefield archaeology is what it sounds like. So now we're finally getting to our wheelhouse, and maybe we'll get excited and wake the hell up for this episode. It's it's what it is. You're basically doing the archaeology of battlefields. Honestly, it's it, it tells us some interesting things. Like realistically, if you want to know how the daily lives of soldiers happened, you excavate the camps. That's where you're going to find this stuff. It's very rare to really find a lot of things at a battlefield, especially prior to gunpowder, because most equipment is taken afterwards. Bodies are taken. You know, they didn't know where they I don't know if they even know where the battle, the the Braveheart battle took place after um, Wallace. Wallace, William Wallace, where he was killed. And then the, the Scots rose up and took the country back. Did I do it right, Tristan? He's in Northern yeah, Irish, too. Um, they don't even know where that battle took place because it's so easy. I have no idea what I'm doing with these accents. They're all English. Isn't that right, Stefan? It's still in English. It's all a British accent. Who cares? But the reason why the, there's a huge contrast in the applicability of battlefield archaeology in the American Revolution versus the Civil Wars. We actually don't have that many notes and letters and documents from the American Revolution. Like, actually, our information on what happens on the battlefield is rather scarce. Whereas in the American Civil War, we know exactly where the battles took place. We can tell you where the formations are. We can tell you who was where and when and what they did. Whereas in the American Revolution, we basically have... This is our guess as to how many troops they have. This is kind of location this happened, but we don't have specifics. And one of the more cooler like case studies of this is one we talked about the, um, the bayonets early on. But there's another one that occurred also done by Bravo. I think it was done by Bravo. The da, 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 let me pull it up. It's not Kings Mountain. It's at, it's at, oh yeah perfect okay get rid of that it's after Lexington and Concord when you know the whole it's called Parker's Revenge basically Parker who was in charge of the colonial militiamen that went to stop the British on the Green got shot at eight were killed ten were wounded and as the seven hundred strong British column seven hundred British redcoats versus seventy seven American militiamen as the seven hundred strong British column were returning back. John Captain John Parker sets up his guys to basically ambush troops all along the way. And at this national park where this occurred, they used metal detectors and archaeologists went out and they were able to find not only musket balls, musket balls that were unfired. So basically to be able to find where musket balls landed and where unfired musket balls were located, you can kind of recreate where someone's being shot at and where someone's being shot from. And you can kind of recreate this. And one of the best case studies of this is actually the Little Bighorn, where they're able to use metal detectors to find the casings, match up bullets, shells with their casings through the through the fire and, and also trace firing pins. So they could in, trace individual rifles across the battlefield and see where people are being shot at and where they're being shot from and clearly recreate the Custer's last stand. So this thing's pretty cool. They also found a uh, couple buttons, which are really hard to find. But it, but it was really interesting to see they found, yeah, copper waistcoat buttons. Basically, using this kind of battlefield archaeology, they're able to figure out exactly on the landscape where the militiamen were hiding, where they were shooting at the British, because it's been over 200 years. 
And so the landscape has changed. It's not the same green meadow trees aren't the same places that they were 200 years ago. So it was just a cool way to, to figure that part out of our history. Like this dude with his 77 militiamen went up and we're just shooting at 800 trained professionals. Yeah, absolutely. Cajones. Yeah. Muy grande cajones. And like Carlton has mentioned, you see diagrams of lines and or where they set up and stuff like that, but there's no real geo-referencing to get it to get us to understand it. So but it's got to be and a lot of it is just metal detecting is going out there with a metal detector and doing these systematic surveys of uh what which you would do um, block surveys in, in um, CRM or, or other um, sort of things where you, you you really try to do it accurately and well, and you can really, really find these interesting um, aspects of these battlefields. Um, they also found a, a Hessian cannonball, which is super cool at that same location. I, I think it would be super fun to do, but I feel like it'd be like, there's a lot of walking around not finding anything with the metal detector. There's probably a lot of, um, finding a lot of coins like from a decade ago. Yeah. And like also, uh, using historical records to like also identify where stuff would be. That's a big part of historic archeology. span Like looking at correspondence between people and be like, okay, this is technically where that battle should have taken place. Then going to metal detecting there and not finding anything and being like, well, historic archeology span sucks. <laughs> A really good example of battlefield archaeology from the Revolutionary War is the battlefield archaeology at uh, Kings Mountain. This is actually in, it's a national park now, it's a national battlefield. It's in the northern part of South Carolina, and it was like a huge thousands on thousands went at each other. And using these survey techniques paired using metal detectors, they were able to find, you know, over 90 acres, they um, found 139 Revolutionary Period artifacts. 81 fired. 54 unfired lettered shots from the battle, once again, showing where they're being shot at, who's who's shooting at who and where from. And there's like kind of, they found five clusters of it. And it really is the most, using this technique, they kind of have the most accepted interpretation of troop positions. And they're able to, using, like David said, like kind of the correspondence, what people said afterwards, using the locality of where these five clusters were, they're like, okay, we're pretty sure that this Southwest cluster here was Xavier's assault, or this cluster here represents the assault of Shelby's men. So that's kind of the importance of it. You know, we already know what happened, but this gives us a better detail of, especially the very important period of our national identity as Americans, that you can still go back 300 years later and do this. Like a lot of guys I know, like I grew up outside of Manassas Battlefield. That was only like the community college I went to was Manassas the Manassas campus, it was right across the street from the battlefield. That fucking intersection is the worst getting between Loudoun County and Fauquier. For those who know, you or no, yeah, you know, you know. And I used to drive by it all to, the time. I wanted to mention another. Um, so we're, we're obviously talking about metal detectors and that sort of technology. But when I was at the Society for Historical Archaeology conference, um, there's a link in the outline for you guys if you want to look at it. They also use LIDAR to help find um, different different mounds and different earthworks that were created during the Revolutionary War. So I think um, at the specifically at the 96 historical site, uh, there, I think there was rumors that there was this, this fort that um, someone had created as part of the Revolutionary War to ultimately protect this location. And they've been using these LIDAR technologies 
to kind of find and document these these more substantial earthworks. There's there's lots of technologies that can be used and that they actually have some really, really cool figures and stuff like that. And this will be we'll drop these in the show notes along with all the other articles that we have been talking about. It, there's a lot of different methods to kind of study this stuff. And you can also do use GPR, ground uh, ground penetrating radar to help find stuff. So it, it it's really important. The technology is super important to kind of reconstructing these past battlefields. 100%. And kind of with that, going out there by yourself with a metal detector and picking up things is not the same. The archaeologists that are using this or working with metal detectorists, it's through survey. They are piece plotting artifacts. We know their locations, but the second you pick up like a musket ball from its location and you forget where that is, it's ultimately worthless. So for those that are listening, who think this is cool, like it's still archaeology, it's still scientific, like there's still a process. Like we're not talking about like random people going out there and just picking stuff up. We're not talking about that one dude's crazy buckle collection down by the 7-Eleven near the cracker could be barrel. literally be anywhere don't care about that guy. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, yeah, yeah. Um, and but I think there are opportunities if you guys are interested, um, reach out to local historical societies, your local um, colleges. You know, I would certainly encourage you to to look for paid and or volunteer opportunities to work at these some of these locations because th- they're always needing workers. Volunteers mostly. <laughs> if you have a weekend and you want to do some fun stuff, this would be the way to do it, especially these battlefields. It's really cool. Those park rangers are also really awesome, like the archaeology interpreters. It'd be a fun weekend. Like I kind of still wish I lived in Northern Virginia to do that stuff. Like I had those we opportunities. Should, we should just do that. I just didn't take them, but just go do one over. <laughs> show up as long as you wear your outfits. pith helmet. You can you can be out of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will show up for the wrong heard, war. I'm ready for the Cor- Boer War. I heard Cornwallis. Like, oh, so. Wrong revolution. <laughs> <laughs> I got excited. David, do you have anything to add? <laughs> Is David awake? Uh no, I mean, like I don't I've ex- like I've exhausted the my revolutionary war knowledge. I know a lot about like, you know, the politics of like starting the country and stuff, I guess, but like the battles I don't know about. I had a really good book recommendation um, that was sent to me. They they were supportive. They're like, yeah, that sounded great. It was by shout out to Karen Brunso. She sent me this amazing book. It is the Indian World of George Washington, the first president, the first Americans, and the birth of the nation by Colin Calloway. I ordered it from Amazon. And it got sent to my home in Boulder, and I'm in Durango at the moment. And I actually don't know my direct address here, so I'll see that at the end of June. But yeah, that was another recommendation that talks about the impact. You know, I mean, maybe not necessarily related to the to the Revolutionary War, but how Washington got along with the indigenous folks here. So thank you for the book recommendation. Don't read 1776 by David McCullough because he's just he's a sellout, right, David? Yeah, he's the Jared Diamond of the <laughs> Get out of here. War world. What does that Get even mean? <laughs> it means he's a bird. He, he studies bird law and he's trying to teach about bird law. Re- <laughs> <laughs> See, in this country, guy, bir- bird uh, law is not governed by reason, guys. <laughs> what is the guy? What who is probably, this reference? 
It's it's a sunny reference. Oh, <laughs> it's true. But the guy who wrote probably the definitive uh, biography of John Adams, and you're calling him a crock. You're calling call, him Jared Diamond. You're calling him a pseudo historian. Is I that call anybody it? that's not a book written by Tom Clancy to be a, <laughs> a crack, crock, whatever the word is. Who's the guy from Fox News? Who used to work at Fox News. Who's always doing right. revolutionary board books. Oh, Bill O'Reilly. Bill O'Reilly. Whatever happened to Bill O'Reilly? Sexual assault allegations. Oh, yeah. That's Bye-bye. a good reason to be fired. Yeah. No more books there's, from him. There's also another guy at Fox News who writes books like that. So avoid Tucker the Carlson. Ki- oh, I can't remember his name. You see the liberal media. Yeah, avoid the killing series by Bill O'Reilly. I'm, I'm thinking of the TikTok, David. You sent us last night, the remix of Alex Jones. <laughs> 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 Don't turn the freaking frogs gay. Oh boy. Uh no. yeah, so that was I don't even know what the actual argument is. I think he's saying that Obama put chemicals in the water that have turned the frogs gay. Yeah. You know, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Next week on Life Ruins podcast. Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna be out there testing the waters. See yeah, the testing frogs. the sexuality of frogs. That'll be an episode. Dip our, t- dip our toes in there and see what happens. Prefer not to. But yeah, that was that was the actual factual, as best as we could get, Revolutionary War Part 2. Threw some archaeology in there for you guys. Hopefully it was this episode was somewhat entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was... this. We'll, we'll stay away from this again. Although, I mean, I think we definitely do have to talk about that... Um, statue of what's his Nathan Bedford Forrest outside of Nashville at some point. Oh yeah. South of Rosigan. <laughs> All right. Let me tell you that story. Let me tell you that story. You're driving from Franklin, Tennessee, where my parents live to Nashville, Tennessee. There's a giant statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest along the highway and it's on someone's private property, but it faces the highway obviously because you know, America, he has the ugliest face. He's riding a horse. He has a sword and he's pointing a pistol behind him like a, you know, Seljuk Turk. And Seljuk Turk, there you go. You know, it looks terrible. It's ugly. Uh, and when I lived there in 2018, when I graduated from Wyoming and moved back to Nashville, I was like, you know what? I'm going to fly a drone over that thing and just like dump paint on it because it sucks. And like, you know, we were in that whole phase of like everything, you know, let's pull statues down. And I was like, that's not pulling a statue. That's just like a harmless you know, pronk. And I was like, that, I can bet I could make that work with a friend. And we were like wondering about it. And then two days later, we saw in the news that somebody dumped pink paint all over the statue. And I was like, oh no, somebody had the right idea to do that before me around the same time. Maybe something happened about it that, you know, maybe had that idea. But yeah, so now it's covered in pink paint. And the guy went on TV and he's like, I don't know who did that. I just know they're cowards. It's just like, all right, take your stupid ass statue down, man. It's ugly anyway. I mean, if you ever go to Nashville with David, he's known for driving around with his Jeep window down and yelling at passerbys, asking if they're famous country music stars. You Keith Urban? (laughs) (laughs) Guy was like, yes. He caught me so off guard. He was just driving me down there with your friend and you just rolled down your window like, you Mariah Carey? And they just like looked like, what the and then I pretended to throw up outside my car. And I was like, guys, don't go to Margaritaville. <laughs> but Nashville hot chicken, man. That's where it's at. Yeah. yeah um, I was going to mention that uh, Nathan uh, Bedford Forrest is known for being uh, – 
the Wizard of the Saddle, but he's also known for being the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. So yeah, see, that's why it's a statue that just shouldn't be facing a main highway in America. I think he he died like he got killed by the Balrog and came back. You know, and he's in, he's in the white wizard phase. We, we tried to be factual, and then this is how it derailed. We just couldn't. Hey, it's we couldn't. We couldn't on, keep it. Let me think. It about it. It. <laughs> let, me think let me think. Give me a second. Ye shall not pass the Fourteenth Amendment. <laughs> That's what he would have said. Yes, he would have. Yes, he would have. Um, but just- you know, in all accuracy, like, please pass that amendment. Please don't rat- <laughs> Please don't repeal that. <laughs> Yeah, on that note, we didn't interview anyone today, so you can just find us where you find us. Be sure to rate the podcast, provide us feedback wherever you're listening. Send us. Messages. Wait, that's not the right. That's not the. That's not the right amendment. Which one? Never mind. We don't are, you talking, are you talking about the Voting Rights There's Amendment? The Thirteenth Amendment, which allowed African Americans freedom. And in- yeah, that's the one. That's the one I was looking for. That's well, more what he would say. There's also one that allowed African Americans to vote too, which he probably would have revealed. Whichever one rat- ended slavery. So the thirteenth. Um, I just cool. want everyone to note that David said that. So send all hate mail to <laughs> at ethnosynology yeah, on Instagram and I'm not send, agreeing send- with it. I'm <laughs> saying if he were to have fought the Balrog and come back as the clan wizard, he would have said, "Ye shall not pass the Thirteenth Amendment." But not the, uh, that was not that was not said by Carlton. He also hates David McCullough and Jane Goodall. And on that note, free Winnie we, the Pooh, free Winnie the Pooh. We just got canceled. We are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.